Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today, we're going to do what we've done before and go behind the scenes of my book, End of Ever After, which is a fairy tale retelling. And this is about Cinderella. If you listened to the last episode, that was with the narrator, Nicole James, the reader of the End of Ever After audiobook. Now available, ebook, paperback, audiobook. Get in any format you like. Following that, now we're going to go to the behind the scenes. Just to put it out there, even though this End of Ever After is the first book in the End of Ever After series, book number one of a five-book companion series, so they can be read in any order. They all stand on their own. We got Cinderella, Rumpelstiltskin, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Snow White. But some parts of them do overlap and intersect. You can listen to some of the previous episodes we have. We went behind the scenes of those books. The reason why this book, even though it's first, is going last is because I had set up these behind the scenes to come out when the audiobooks were complete. And even though this book had gone up first, for audiobook, there was a whole mess with one narrator and she kind of disappeared on me and this, that, whatever, till finally Nicole came and did a fantastic job on the book. So check it out afterwards or listen, definitely listen to her, the interview with Nicole James. Really interesting. So that's why End of Ever After is happening last. It's all good. Part of what the behind the scenes is now is showing also what it is to set up the series. For example, there was an article that was published the Writer's Digest, January, February, 2022. So just the last issue that just came out, an article that came out by this writer who someone you may be familiar with, E.L. Tenenbaum, if you've ever heard of her, and it's about writing a series. And a lot of the pointers of writing a series came from experiences writing my own series. So I have a duology, a standalone, this five book companion series, and please God, I got a trilogy coming up. Stay tuned and check it out. So why is this all important? Because when you're writing a series, and even though these are companion books, and so that means that the chronology of them, are it's not a straight chronology, and it's more linear because of the overlapping timelines and things like that, there still have to be world-building consistencies. There still has to be logic that occurs that not only ties the series together, but keeps the readers believing in the author and the story that they're, you know, that they're weaving. So a lot of that was started in the end of of Ever After book. And when I first started out writing this, I did not think it was going to be a series. I just had the book in my head. It's interesting. Sometimes when you look back to see, you know, where did this book come from? Where did the idea for that book come from? Sometimes you know the moment why you thought of the idea. Sometimes you don't, you know, have no idea you don't remember. Like I still don't remember my Sapphire Legend duology. I don't remember where that idea came from. I just know it was in my head. You can listen to the behind the scenes of that book to find out about that one. And then End of Ever After, when I first thought about it, because I wrote it several years ago, it wasn't exactly in the same time frame, but the live action of Cinderella had just come out from Disney, or recently come out from Disney. And then I had also seen Cinderella on stage. I seen the musical performance of it. So I think between those two, and then I think I'd probably seen some YouTube, like an honest trailer or Cinema Center, one of these things. They, find, they keep coming out with new Cinderella's and it's still all the same Cinderella. So I think all of that was kind of percolating and brewing in the cauldron, getting ready for an idea to bubble. I think after I'd seen it live, I remember thinking that nine times out of 10, not always, but nine times out of 10, Cinderella and the prince are gonna find each other. And then I had this moment of thinking, what if the prince wasn't so good? What if he was actually evil? So sometimes you'll have that and then the prince will go through a redeeming arc. But I had that and I didn't want that. I didn't want the prince to be redeemed. It wasn't gonna happen. And part of that was that the original intention was to write this anti-fairy tale book. Not because they'll rip down all the fairy tales or whatever. It was just, it seemed like a different approach to, to retellings. I also didn't realize, just because I hadn't just put two and two together, that the fairy tale rewriting genre is massive. I had read other retellings. I have a lot of retellings. I've read a bunch of retellings. There's a lot more out there that I haven't read or seen or heard about. Found more afterwards. 
So it's a massive genre. There's a lot of people that that's, they love the retellings. So this is sort of my way of trying to find a new approach to retelling the Cinderella story. Part of the idea of writing this anti-fairy tale was not just to rip fairy tales apart. Fairy tales serve a certain purpose. There's a reason why they've lost it throughout the generations. And not just because, oh, true love and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of other things going on there, especially if you look at the original Grim fairy tales. You go beyond that. Across the globe, a lot of cultures have their versions. When I was in high school, we looked at some of the grim fairy tale retellings and, you know, the truth about what really happened here. And it's not the way Disney did then. So I had a lot of that percolating, I guess, and that I was able to draw upon a lot of that stuff in coming to this. It was only after this book had already been written, I think probably even the second, maybe even the third book had been written. And those I don't remember. I don't remember why I decided Rumpelstiltskin or Little Mermaid or even Snow White and Beauty and the Beast. Even though Snow White and Beauty and the Beast, I specifically wanted to choose some to tell from a princess point of view and not just from the, from the princess's point of view. So that could be why I chose those ones. But it was only after I started, however many of these had been written, and I was working on them with, with my editor, my very brilliant editor, Marion Faye, who helped tons and tons and tons in the shaping of the series and intentionally or otherwise really teaching me about things I have to look out for in writing a series, some things that I had overlooked or hadn't really considered. She pressed me really hard with this and it was the best thing. Sometimes it wasn't, it didn't feel like the best thing, but it was the best thing. So at one point she mentioned to me that she was talking to someone else about them and she said they're very memoir style. That's the way they're told like in a memoir style. And I said, yes, that's the phrasing of it. It's not just an anti-fairy tale thing. It's a memoir style. It's filling in the rest of the story. And I specifically chose that because also when you're writing retellings or when either in film or in books or even saw wherever it is that they've got these retellings, there's a certain structure that's always going to be there because the point of the retelling is that you have the poor girl or it could be a poor boy even finding the fairy tale prince. The prince could be an actual prince. It could be someone who's prince-like or just a CEO of a company, or just someone who seems princely, and they gotta find each other. That's kind of like the basic structure of it. You could do that at any time, in any place. You could put that structure into any sort of genre. I specifically chose to keep the original stories. If you would strip away all the parts that I added, the original fairy tale is still there and is still intact. That was just the direction that I chose. Now, choosing that direction also meant that I had to follow certain parts of the story, because I had to make sure those original fairy tales were still there. So that dictates part of the telling. And that also means that even when you're adding stuff, you have to make sure it's going to make sense for the way certain parts of the story turned out. When my editor said, oh, this is like a memoir style, I was like, yeah, that encapsulates it perfectly. And that's also why part of the style of it is that there's very much a looking back sense to it. So let's we'll admit that some reader feedback on the end of Ever After series was that there's too much foreshadowing in it. I thought I had toned it down, but I guess not. But part of it is that I wasn't necessarily seeing it as a foreshadowing. I mean, it's a, it's a fair thing to say. That's what the readers are feeling. But... Part of it was not necessarily the foreshadowing of this like whole dun dun dun, oh, something's about to happen, something's about to happen. But if it's a memoir style, that means that we know the story already. So she's building up to something that we know about and she's building up to give an explanation for, oh yeah, we know this massive incident, but she's not gonna tell us the lead up to the massive incident. That was kind of like my view and my approach to it. So it is possible it came out a little bit too much as foreshadowing, but the intent was not just, oh, look, we're just going to alert you, alert you, alert you, something's about to happen. But it's, hey, we all know the story, right? Think of any famous person. We know a lot of highlights of their life. So if they're writing a memoir, we're waiting for certain incidents to come up in the memoir. That was sort of the approach to writing these stories. The Cinderella one came out a little bit different than the other ones as far as the timeline of it and where the original fairy tale fits into the timeline of it. This is kind of five years later. So part of it happens in the real time of the fairy tale and much of it happens after. Some of the other stories, the fairy tale plays out across the span of the book. For example, like the Little Mermaid one, it has the epilogue sort of chapter, but it still plays out almost in the same time, the real time of the fairy tale. This one does not. Now, there are certain things to tie the series together 
that I did intentionally. They're just little things here and there. So for example, every book in the five book series, the first chapter is always titled Ever After, which is kind of the prologue. Oh, you think my story went like this? Well, this is the truth of my story. They all start like that. The last chapter of every book is called After Ever After, which is sort of like the epilogue, the wrap up kind of chapter. Of all five of the books, the first chapter starts off with my father, except the Little Mermaid one, starts off with Sienna's father. But each one, they're first speaking about kind of their relationship or non-relationship with their father and kind of how that affected them and molded them. Now, part of that is also because in a lot of these fairy tales, the mother figure is either not there, she's represented by the cruel stepmother, different things like that. But I still, I purposely put that in. Now, another thing that it was kind of a rule that was set, the way my editor said it, especially because the first book came out, some of the manuscripts for the other books had been written, but this series, I got to thank Caroline for signing the full series, even though not all the books had been written yet. But the last book was written already after the first books were printed. The way my editor put it, she said it's canon now, which kind of seems a funny word to say for something that's not Star Wars or something. <laughs> something that's very well known and very well embedded in the culture. But it is true that once the first book is out there, you can't undo or change anything that's been written in it. Which, just as a side point, I've, I've kind of debated. Writers, you often have multiple ideas to work on. So is it worth it to start a book that might be the beginning of the series? And then you gotta work, is it worth it to go to book two or to work on something else? So we have different projects, different manuscripts in your library to offer to publishers or agents. I don't know, there's a merit to both. With my trilogy now, I'm trying out writing the second book before the first book is published. And I've already gone back to the first book to make certain logical changes because I want them to be like that in the second book. But you know, we'll go into that more, please God, when those will come out. Back to this. So, this book spilled out of me. It's actually one of the fastest books I wrote. I wrote it in about like three weeks maybe. And I just, the story just spilled out. And obviously the editing of it takes way longer and the editing took months and months and years. Once those things were out there and once that story's out there, I'm now bound by whatever I wrote in the first book. And that kind of affected certain decisions that came in the later books. For example, the Beauty and the Beast book was very much affected by it because I kind of set up certain things in this first book that had to be answered and addressed in the Beauty and the Beast book and they couldn't be changed. So I now have to make sure the story was tailored and made sense according to things that had been said in this book. The same thing, the Snow White book is also one of them, especially because these characters are more prominent in this book. Just, it was interesting. The captain who's mentioned in this book and the huntsman from the Snow White book, there was a lot of back and forth on their names, which kind of seems like such a random thing. You just choose, some, choose a name for someone. But for some reason, their names were like some of the last ones chosen. There was a name that was like, no, it doesn't really fit them. No, the same, whatever. Look at just so much origins of names and the meanings and all that kind of stuff till we finally settled on their names. Anyways, another thing that was set up in this book is part of it, I was just trying to write this character and I wanted her to look a little bit different. So I gave her purple eyes. I got some feedback. What's with all the purple in this book? Well, it's like, well, purple became a theme then. So I gave her purple eyes and originally it was just, okay, that's, you know, it's just gonna be a cool look for her to have a purple eyes. Until I started then with, with the fairy godmother and the magic system and all that kind of stuff. And the fairy godmother was appearing in like purple smoke or wherever she comes. And all the magic that she does is purple. So I sort of set up this rule that when we see purple, we know magic is about. So to answer the question, that's what all the purple's about. Purple equals magic. That's a rule that was set up in the series so that way the reader, you tune into it, you're like, oh, purple equals magic. I know there's magic about. I hadn't totally thought it through because I'm giving the main character, who's Ella, I gave her purple eyes. I specifically did not want her to have magic. Well, for a lot of different reasons. I think her, her behaviors and decisions would have been different if she would have had magic, and that wasn't necessarily the story I was telling. So now I have to figure it out. I had to slip in an origin story there somewhere to explain why she has purple eyes. Because also, why does she have a fairy godmother nobody else does? Right, that's another question. But how come she does the fairy godmother? What makes her so special? You could say, oh, because she's down and out, blah, blah, blah. Well, why are you 
nobody else in the entire kingdom is kind of down and out and lives in such a garbage kind of situation. I could have said yes. There's lots of fairy godmothers, lots of other people being helped by fairy godmothers. Gonna be a whole convention of girls helped by fairy godmothers. But I didn't. That wasn't the story I was telling either. So I intertwine the two of those to say that the fairy godmother, her dad, was rescued by Ella's mother while she was pregnant with Ella. And so she promised, you know, by the same way you looked after me, my daughter will look after your child. And this magical promise, this binding that occurred, kind of turned Ella's eyes purple, even though she doesn't have magic, but it happened before she was born, etc. So that's why that, and that's also why she has the fairy godmother. Speaking about the fairy godmother, when you look at the different origins of Cinderella, because for all of these series, I went back to the original fairy tales and looked up the different versions of the original fairy tales. So you have the French version, which is the one that Disney worked on the most. That's the most familiar one, especially in the Western culture. That's the one that's most familiar, not because that's what Disney popularized. But there's Chinese versions of it. There's a lot of different versions of it. In some of the other versions of it, there's one with like the goldfish kind of at, there's like a goldfish or something that asks, that's kind of asked in like the fairy godmother way. And there's one about this whole tree, this magical tree. So I actually stuck both of them into the end of ever after retelling. And usually, usually the fairy godmother is called underneath this magical tree. So I kind of combined both of those fairy godmother elements and uh, attached them to each other. So that's one example of all world building and rules that you got to put into place that now affects the rest of the series. Another thing you have to consider, which is, you know, you got a fairy godmother and if she has a dad, and especially later on, we have mermaids and stuff like that. So what are the rules? We call it magicals. What are the rules for magicals in this kingdom? Like is magic something that's very commonplace that a lot of people could have? Or is magic something that's only particular kind of people or species have it? You know, how does it work? In this telling, especially in these fairy tale, keeping the original fairy tale tellings, magic is present. You could tell a version without magic. I, because I kept the original tellings, magic has to be present. So I kept it small and I kept it to a few. I also wove it into part of the reason, this whole thing with the prince and Ella and everything that goes on, is that the prince um, hates magic. He has a strong aversion to it. We have to explain why, right? So this whole thing with his mom and dad, whatever. Okay, read this book to find out why, okay? But it's all there. So that's also a thing, especially if you're setting up rules. Some rules need to be explained and some rules don't. You could just say purple is magic. I don't have to explain why purple has to be magic. That's just the way we set it up in the story. It's not like every single contemporary story has to explain why the sky is blue. We accept this as being part of the nature of the world that's been created. But for example, if you have a thing of like, the, oh, the prince hates magic, that's usually something that needs some sort of explanation. Usually there's a bad run-in somewhere or a bad experience somewhere. And then we're like, okay, I get it. I get why he'd hate it. So now we're like, what's the big deal? Why would you hate magic so much? All of the fairytale retellings all have sort of like a theme that they were built around. So for example, the Rumpelstiltskin retelling had a lot to do with lies and truth and names and all that sort of stuff. The Cinderella one, especially the idea of it being this anti-fairytale retelling and also making the prince not be such a good character. Part of it was, this is criticism that a lot of people have with fairy tales in general. And when you're looking at it from a certain kind of lens is this perfection that she's chasing after and it's not a realistic, it's a fantasy. In the fairy tale world, they meet each other and everything's happily ever after. The story I've told, it's like, well, what happens after happily ever after, right? She meets the prince and they get whisked away and everything's all beautiful. And so then there were certain things I started thinking to myself, especially in this consideration. She falls totally head over heels in love with this guy that she built no relationship with, right? Especially if you look at it, there's three dances, she's a mystery, so that's why he kind of goes for her. And now they're married, well, now they have to live together. So how are these people supposed to live together if they never had like a real 
conversation with each other. They don't know what their values are. They don't know what they like. They don't know what color is their favorite. You know, they don't know anything about each other. Oh, but you could have made that. Yes, I could have, but that's not the story I was telling. There's one thing about this whole, you know, happily ever after. The other thing to consider with this whole happily ever after thing is that the whole story of Cinderella, she's brought up by this evil stepmother. And it's like, oh, but then she meets her prince and everything's perfect. If we want to look at it realistically, Ella basically grew up in kind of a verbally abusive situation. It's not healthy. Her stepmother is obviously not a good person. And when you turn a daughter into a servant in her own home, the way she's treated and ripping the dress and all these things that occur, that's not healthy. So sure, maybe there's some people who develop this great resilience to get through it. A lot of times they might need an outside support system. There's friends who help them get through it. They have mentors that help them get through it. You know, it's possible and it could help. The fairy godmother could have been turned into some sort of mentor who helps her overcome these sort of things. But when I was looking at it, taking A, this idea of this fantasy prince that she just floats away with, and B, this home that she grew up in, for me, obviously, it was a toxic mix. And also because that was the kind of story I was going for. The next step from there was, so she's growing up in an abusive situation. If she does marry a prince and her life seems so perfect, right? So number one, she's got to get to know this guy who turns out he's outwardly charming, but inside he's a little bit rotten. Number two, she has to learn to process and deal with and get through and stand on her own after the life that she's been brought up with. Which is why, and this is sort of a conversation I had with someone once who had been in a home with a little bit of an unhealthy situation. And she was saying that she had this fear that she was going to end up in the same sort of situation when she was going to be older and have her own home because that was what she knew and that was what she was used to. So we're getting very deep. Part of what's happening here is Ellen, even though she knows that the way she's treated is wrong, she also doesn't yet know how to break out of it. She doesn't yet know how to demand to not be treated like that. She doesn't yet know to not allow someone to treat her like that. Which is why her going to the palace and this whole happily ever after that happens is not happily ever after because she's got a lot of growth ahead of her. And that's why a lot in the beginning, she's just, she's very submissive. Whatever the prince wants goes because she just has, he's just in a halo and a glowing light for her. She doesn't question, she doesn't wonder, she doesn't stand up, talk back or any of these sort of things. And she's got to get through that. In the meantime, the prince who thought he loved her also fell in love with fantasy, right? He blames that on the magic, but he also fell in love with a fantasy, which eventually, instead of getting to know her and like, oh, hey, you know, maybe we could still make this work. Instead, he grows to resent her and resentment often leads to hatred. He ends up totally hating her. And that's why he makes certain decisions about what he's going to do with her, which leads to the ultimate final scene, which I don't know if I should spoil her or anything. Okay, should we just say spoilers ahead? Spoilers ahead. The ultimate final scene between Ella and the prince is when Ella finally, after all the time that she's been in the palace, okay, so it's five years, after all that she's been through, now she has friends. She, she didn't have friends before. She, had, she has a bird as her friend and a fairy godmother, sort of. But now she, she has friends. So some of it's Princess Lila in this, from the Snow White story. She has kind of her closest maid. Her highest ranking maid becomes sort of like a friend to her. The captain is someone. All these people are people who respect her. They see the good in her to try to draw that out. They try to work past, draw her out of this shell that she's within because of what she grew up with. I only gave it five years, but it's, so it takes a while to come out of that. So that's why we have the final scene. That's her finally standing up. When she ends up poisoning the prince, she ends up killing the prince. Big spoiler, she's finally done it. And even until then, we have the whole thing with the trade schools. It takes a long time. She has to trust the trust that people have in her. She has to find something for herself to say, look, I can do something, which is why she needed the whole trade school thing. My editor didn't love how meek Ella was, which also went back to the trade school thing. We had to give her something to start making her a little bit of a stronger character. A lot of people don't like reading about weak characters. We want characters to be strong. We want to see how they find strength in things. So eventually Ella does find strength 
ends up standing up and we could we could imagine her being a very good queen but she had to go through a lot to get there that's kind of what the story is what she's going through to get to that point also a lot of things that she's gone through is going to allow her to become a good queen either because she's going to have sympathy now she has experiences that allow her to relate to certain sort of things so all of this there's a whole setup for all of it so end of spoiler now oh i should actually say add one more thing ellie my co-host she read a draft of this of this manuscript before it had been sent out, before it was published. And that last scene, I'd originally written it, I guess you could say a little bit colder. She was like, okay, you gotta tone it down a little bit because we have to still sympathize with Ella as a character, which is why I added in the part about how, even though she did it, but it was still hard for her to do it. So, you know, just still hope that it wasn't gonna happen. I did, I softened it a little bit. Anyways, one other thing that's in this, a kind of another, I guess you could say, sort of theme, and this also connects to the anti-fairy tale thing, is that also kind of, okay, this is a house spoiler. Big moment with the slipper and the glass slipper and the prince finally comes and blah, 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 whatever. Oh, just to throw it out there, we have the whole scene with everybody getting the invitations to go to the ball. And someone, there's like kind of like a soldier that shoves it into her hands and she looks up and tries to figure out what's got there. We don't say it explicitly, but I, w I would say that it would not be inaccurate to think that the captain kind of made sure that that happened because... He was probably anticipating if she shows up there, then he can, you know, end up meeting her there. Wasn't planning for the prince to come in, to step in and see her. So that's a side thing. Going back, so another theme that's kind of also present and goes to the whole anti-fairy tale thing is this idea of creating the fairy tale. We see it also a lot in the Rumpelstiltskin story. We see it in the Snow White story, in the Heart of a Hunter, where Princess Lila says, you know, the people believe the story we tell them. Let's get a good storyteller out there. We don't have to look far to see how the extreme end of that would be. You know, anytime anybody uses propaganda to their benefit or any, the damage control, whatever, someone they, oh, we have to call them the PR team to do damage control. But here we have it just in the sense of the fairy tales, right? And this is also a theme that's set up that, oh, you think you know the story? You think you know what really goes on? Let me tell you the real story of what occurs. We see that specifically with the whole thing with the slipper, right? So we have the big moment with the slipper, Theoretically, if there was no oh, PR team propaganda situation going on, the prince would have seen Ella as a servant and it would have turned around and walked out. But then we're not telling the Cinderella story anymore, as in not the following the original framework. So sure, in a different retelling, could have turned around and walked out, maybe one day they would have met each other in a different situation and still ended up together. Instead, we see that he has this advisor, Sir Percival, who kind of whispers in his ear, we don't hear what he says, but we can imagine that what's being said is something to the effect of, it's too late now. Also, the people are going to love this. They're going to love someone being raised up, you know, the rags to riches sort of story. They're going to love it so much. Ella eventually finds this out. She eventually finds out that a lot of this was just about the PR, which again also leads to the prince kind of resentment of it all, of like, sure, we made this whole spectacle about having to find the person with the slipper, but now I found her and I realized I don't really necessarily even like her. It was just a big spectacle that we that was created why are we going through with it? That can also lead to the resentment and the hatred and all that sort of stuff. So Ella eventually finds this out. And in a way, her writing the memoir later is kind of like, I'm going to tell you the truth about the whole spectacle that was great. I can tell you the truth about the, the PR and the, and the magic story. One of the things that Ella specifically learns and repeats and speaks about is why did no one tell me the truth of the fairy tales? How come no one told me the truth behind all of this? The, all these princesses across the realms and all these you know, fairy tale couples, what is really going on? Is their life really so perfect? Which is also kind of an important thing. And especially in this whole fairy tale retelling genre, and especially with all this sort of stuff, is that a lot of us prefer and are looking for this sort of perfection, fairy tale kind of perfection. But it's not necessarily realistic. You can ask the question, you know, if Ella and the prince had been honest with each other from the outset, Ella and Alex, if, if they'd been, they had met each other in, you know, their true forms or something like that, if they would have just had a normal conversation with each other, with things that turned out differently, without the magic, without the fairy tale sparkle and all that sort of stuff, would that have been better for them? Maybe, possibly. Which is also why the whole thing with the captain is that he saw Ella 
when the whole scene happens at the at the fountain at the well, he from the outset he sees her at one of her lowest points, and he consistently sees her at her low points. He also sees her at her high points, and he also sees the potential for the for the high points that she has. And that's way more realistic. That's way more real than this perfect fantasy that's kind of been created that we kind of create. So that's sort of what the whole End of Ever After series is about. And that's specifically what Ella's story is about and what lies beneath the perfection. And, is you know, is the perfection real? And is this good to just fall in love with an ideal and a perfection? Is that something that's realistic for the day-to-day? Her answer is no. Maybe other people think otherwise. That's kind of what her answer is. So that's the basis. Highly recommend that you check it out. You can find more information about End of Ever After at www.eltenemum.com. Just click on the book that's on the shelf there. Thanks so much for joining us. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring behind the scenes of End of Ever After. Find out more about Oh My Word podcast and all the great stuff we're up to. Please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Or check us out at eltenemum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.